Welcome to the NICU Dad Podcast, a podcast for NICU dads by NICU dads. I'm Alex Zavala, a father to two preemie girls, Mia, who was born at 30 weeks, and Emerson, who was born at 27 weeks. Combined, my wife Jen and I both spent over 100 days in the NICU. After my last NICU experience, I started the NICU Dad. I did this to try and fill the gap of information and support that was lacking for NICU dads. Be sure and check out thenicudad.com, and hopefully you will find it a useful resource. In this podcast, we will cover many topics that NICU parents face, but from the NICU dad's perspective. Topics such as premature birth, bereavement, PTSD, and many others. These dads who you'll hear share their stories in hope of letting other NICU dads know they are not alone. Every NICU journey is different and brings its own challenges. Balancing those challenges with other life responsibilities can be complex and difficult, especially when going through a long NICU stay. Those long stays can be a roller coaster, with prognosis sometimes changing one day to the next. Few NICU dads know this roller coaster better than Chris Cox. Chris and his wife, Shana, welcomed their son, Beckett, in January of 2019. And after a seven-month NICU stay, Beckett was called to heaven. Chris blogged about his NICU experience as he was going through it, and he has now published a book about his son's journey called From Love to Loss, A NICU Odyssey. Chris is a web and social media professional and lives with his wife in Missouri. And uh, today's guest is Chris Cox. And Chris, first of all, we want to thank you for being on this episode and, and sharing your story with everyone, and we really appreciate you being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Why don't you share your story with us and, and tell us what your NICU journey was like? Sure. So, like I said, um, my name is Chris Cox and my wife, Shana. We live uh, in Missouri. Um, our NICU journey was pretty hectic, to say the least. Um, we tried to uh, have a baby for, goodness, probably about a year. Um, we had our struggles, so we solicited uh, the help of my wife's uh, doctor. And uh, they prescribed my wife Clomid, um, which I think she said was a kind of awful experience for a little while, but uh, it, it blessed us in, in a few ways. Um, we got pregnant about within a month, um, and I have to say those few months after that were, were pretty awesome. We were, were kind of riding high on happiness. Um, I was super giddy. I'll never forget uh, when she told me um, I was, like, still asleep in my bed, um, and she had already gotten up, uh, which is pretty normal, uh, to say the least. But I could just tell something was up because there's a lot of shuffling going on, a lot of movement. Um, and usually, you know, she'd get up and, and go into the living room and she was in the bathroom. So I knew something was, was going on. So she comes in um, and to wake me up. And she's super giddy right off the bat. So I was like, okay, something's going on. She's never this happy <laughs> in the morning. Um so she uh, she kind of pulls me into the dining room area, and I come in there, and there's a Jimmy Fallon book. And I, first of all, I couldn't see anything. I didn't, I wear contacts, and I'm about half blind, <laughs> so I couldn't see anything. Um, but I could tell there was something blurry sitting on the table. I uh, walk in there, and uh, it's a Jimmy Fallon book that says Dada with a pregnancy test and said we were pregnant. So we uh, we laughed. We tried. We pretty much a jump for joy because we'd been trying for so long. It, it was, it was a blessing, honestly. It, it was pretty amazing. Um, after that, um, I actually, uh, was supposed to golf with my dad and brother that day. And I'll, ne I'll never forget that part. Cause I was like, it's just one of those days that like, I couldn't stop smiling, but of course I like couldn't tell yeah. them yet because <laughs> we hadn't told the family. So it was kind of weird. I was like having to conceal it. I'm sure my dad was probably like, what is wrong with this guy? <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. But no, so it, it was a blessing. Um, a few months after that, we kind of went in for a uh, routine ultrasound and we were sitting there and, you know, we, we saw him on the screen. He was moving. He had a great heartbeat. We looked over and there was a little bit of uneasiness on the ultrasound technician's part. So we were kind of like, well, you know, we don't, we don't really know what it is. We had a follow-up with our, our doctor right afterwards. And so, and it was just down the hall. So we went down the hall. And, you know, we go down there and I, I can't remember. I don't think she came in. If she did, she came in briefly and then left real quick. All I know is she uh, made a phone call and my wife has much better hearing than I have, uh, but she went, she stepped in her office behind 
the the exam room that we were in and made a phone call to a specialist and my wife could hear the whole conversation and it was probably one of the most unsettling moments of my life but she looks over at me and she says something's wrong with the baby and I was like what I was like what like how do you know she's like I can hear the doctor behind us she's saying there's something wrong with the baby and sure enough two seconds later that she comes in um and basically they told us that there was a problem they thought but they were going to send us to a specialist just to be sure well we got to go see the specialist and of course we were a nervous wreck i mean we we had no idea what to think no idea what to say we were just hoping and praying that everything was okay Uh, we went to see the specialist uh, a few days after that and it was like we walked it was all so fast um, we were we were told that this particular specialist was was a very blunt, uh, but good doctor. But mm-hmm. uh, he would mm-hmm. tell tell us like it was, um, which you know, especially going through the NICU journey that I did, I, I can definitely respect and appreciate uh, in hindsight. But we basically sat down and he said, kind of, yeah, I'm, I'm confirming what what your previous doctor said. You know, it is going to require you to be put on bed rest. And my wife's a teacher. Um, so if there's any teachers in the audience, you guys know that <laughs> that is not an easy task to accomplish, at least in an immediate fashion. And so, of course, mm-hmm. we were like, well, how, how long do we have? And he's like, like now. So then, you know, we had to get my wife a sub, which, which again, it was a blessing. Everything fell into place. Um, she was put on bed rest. And I think he told us that we needed to come back <clears throat> within a week, which we did. And uh, he at that point wanted to admit my wife, which was really scary. Um, it was like, like, how is this happening? Literally a week ago, like everything was fine. The kiddo had a great heartbeat. He looked great. And now like we're being admitted to the hospital and we have like 16 weeks to go. Like, this is so scary. So she gets admitted. Um, and the plan, basically what they said she had, um, was, or what they were hoping that she wouldn't get to, I guess, was reversed in diastolic flow, um, which is basically the, the the mom is sending nutrients to the baby through the umbilical artery, and that's the way that it's supposed to go. But what you don't want to happen is whenever uh, the nutrients start getting sent back to the mom. Um, at that point, right. the uh, baby has to be taken in an emergency C-section, and it's usually caused by high blood pressure, preeclampsia, um, which my wife had high blood pressure. Um, so they, once, once she was admitted, you know, she had everything from the, the magnesium, you know, we had the steroid shots. Of course, at that point they had to basically do everything that they could. So we got as many shots as we could get in a short amount of time, um, to ensure that our baby's lungs would be able to grow. Um, by the time he got here. At that point, the plan was still to get him here, uh, I think, at 34 weeks at that point. Um, We got to 25 weeks. Uh, It was extremely scary. Um, I actually made, because I had been with my wife for like a week, uh, just kind of off and on in the hospital because she was admitted, and I was trying to take care of stuff at home and the dogs. um, But I kept trying to, like I said, spend as much time as I could with her. Um, but she, we finally came to a somewhat of an agreement. We were like, you know, you need to go to work. You're, you're not really like accomplishing much here except for stressing out. So, I mean, I appreciate their honesty in that. So I was like, you know what, you're right. Let me go to work. Maybe I can somehow get my mind off of it a little bit. So I actually went into work on a Monday morning, January 28th, uh, 2019. And I was, I just remember getting to work and sitting in my chair and I was just dumbfounded. I didn't, I didn't know what to say. I was almost craving human interaction at that point, like just begging, like, man, somebody, because I was the first one there. So I was please, somebody just show up so I can have somebody to talk <laughs> yeah. to, have a normal conversation aside from this nightmare that I've been living. Um, so someone finally did show up and, you know, we kind of talked and, you know, they asked me how uh, Shana was doing and, you know, I told them and everything and they told me they were praying for me. And I got a call about, I want to say 10, 15 minutes later, it was still really early in the morning. Um, 
and it was my mother-in-law. She had come to be with my wife that Monday uh, because they had scheduled a, another ultrasound to check the, the flow in the umbilical, um, and my wife didn't want to be alone, so her mom came down. I got a phone call from her mom, and her mom basically said, you know, the doc's in here. Um, he's going to take a look. Uh, I just wanted to have you on the phone in case it wasn't good because they think if it's not good, like, obviously we're going to have this baby. So, I mean, at that point, again, I was scared to death, but I stayed on the phone. I, I kind of tried to listen into what the doc was saying. I think it might have been one of the nurses or maybe even my wife. I'm not really sure. Like I said, I was just kind of dumbfounded at that point. I, it was almost like time time was standing still. Um, but somebody said, like, you need to get here like now. Mm-hmm. Um, and all I remember doing was running out of my office. You know, I obviously told the people that I work with, like, I got to go. And they didn't even ask questions. They were amazing. They, they knew, I think, what was going on. Um, and I ran to my car and, I mean, it was January. We just had a snowstorm. So there was snow everywhere. And I probably drove I work about 30 minutes away from the hospital my son was born at. I probably drove 100 miles per hour, and I didn't even realize it. In hindsight, I know how reckless it was, but I didn't realize how fast I was going. All I knew was, you know, I couldn't let my wife have this kid alone, and if something bad was going to happen, I couldn't live with the fact that, that I wasn't there at that point. So I luckily I did make it to the hospital, Um I got up to my wife's hospital room, and everybody was still in there. Uh, and my wife was amazing. I looked at her, and she was – I mean, I could tell just by looking at her eyes that she was a nervous wreck, and she was stressed and scared and all of that. But her demeanor, you could tell that she was trying to stay tough for everybody. Um, mm-hmm. I, It was almost contagious, except for I was, like, shaking. Um, she was much tougher than I was. I was freaking out, asking everybody if everything was okay. Um, they kept assuring me that, you know, essentially they didn't know. They just they just knew that the flow had reversed like they anticipated and that we needed to take the, the baby in a C-section. So, you know, it seemed like it was hours later, but I think it was probably merely minutes later. Uh, they yeah. finally did yeah. take, take us back. Um, and they started the process of the C-section. And, the medical staff were amazing. I mean, the whole time they were worried about my wife and I trying to get us to stay calm. Um, the docs were, you know, asking us about our journey and telling us that they would pray for us and stuff like that. So it was really awesome. Um, so my son was born, um, and it was honestly probably the scariest 10 minutes of my life. I, I would assume it's probably in the neighborhood of five to 10 minutes. Again, this time was standing still, it was still at that point. Um, but they had told us when they took us back to the room, they said, you know, we're going to put up this sheet, uh, cause you know, this is a major surgery. Uh, we don't necessarily want you to see that, but yeah. whenever your, your baby comes out, we'll, we'll bring them up so you can take a look at them. So we were like, okay, well, you know, that, that kind of put us at ease, I think for a second, as much as it could in that moment. Um, so they pulled them out and, you know, we were expecting them to, to put the sheet down, bring him up so we could take a look and they just walked right past us. Like, what the heck's going on? Um, And they walked to the resuscitation room behind us and started resuscitating him because I guess he wasn't breathing. Um, Mm. And, you know, we were freaking out, scared to death, kept asking, you know, is he going to be okay? You know, is he alive? And they just basically said, like, we're doing everything we can. We'll let you know. Um, So we just kind of sat there. And it was the most powerless I've ever felt in my life. I'll never forget. So I was watching every emotion at that point. I was, you know, like a detective sitting there. I I was making, like, trying to watch every facial expression on every person's face because I I didn't want to miss a beat if, if, you know, he passed. Like, I I, I didn't Mm -hmm. want want to not know. And I'll never forget, I was staring in the resuscitation room, and I saw a smile creep across one of the nurses' face, and it was like relief just poured over my body. And she comes in, and she says, we were able to intubate. And we all just kind of collectively, like, sighed. Like, we'd been holding our breath for hours. Yeah. Um, so that was that was pretty amazing and definitely hectic. Um, and, you know, my wife, again, super strong as she was, you know, 
they once they were able to uh, put my son on the bag, they were going to take him down to the NICU. Um, and my wife's like, you need to, you know, go be with our son. I'll be fine. Um, and, again, just had a major surgery. Uh, I guess she also was not reacting the best to the anesthetic, which I think is normal. But, you know, she was mm-hmm. feeling ill. But all she, she was like, you need to go with the baby. So it, it was just still amazing to me to this day how she did that. Um, but I went down there uh, with our son, and I sat outside the NIC room, the NICU room while uh, they basically hooked him up to uh, the high-frequency ventilator that he was on. I think it was the JET ventilator at that time, um, which was a pretty lengthy process. And, yeah, I I guess bef- shortly before that, I guess before they took him down, um, I was just kind of standing there in shock. I didn't, again, didn't know what to say, didn't know what to do. I knew there was nobody I could ask who had been there. Um, and one of the doctors said, do you have your phone? And I was like, well, yeah, of course I have my phone. And she's like, well, do you do you want a picture? And so I, I, I pulled out my phone, and I go to take a picture of him, and his eyes were wide open. He's looking right at me. It was probably the coolest moment I've ever had in my life. Um, most humbling experience for sure. And then they they handed me these pair of surgical scissors and they go, do you want to cut the cord? And I was like, you mean I can? Cause I mean, he was, he was born at a, a pound four ounces. So, I mean, I knew that he was fragile and barely hanging in there. So I was like, you, you guys are sure you're going to let me do that. I got to do pretty much everything that a normal dad gets to do aside from actually get to hold my son. Um, and I just remember standing there holding his hand, you know, he was kind of in this almost cellophane like bag to keep him warm mm-hmm. until they could get him in, uh, the isolate. And, you know, like I said, then they took him down. Um, I went down with them, um, and standing outside his room, nervous wreck. They finally got all this stuff hooked up and they're like, you can go in. And I just kind of shuffled in nervously. I didn't know what I was going to see. Um, I looked at him, and he was in there just fighting with everything he had, uh, super small, um, but beautiful nonetheless. And so that's that's kind of the day that he was born. I, I remember it um, pretty vividly. Um, we had a pretty long NICU experience after that. Um, we were in the NICU for seven months. Um, my son went through, I think, just about, anything a baby can go through in the NICU. You know, he had the PDA ligation. Um, he got pneumonia several times, uh, was sick. Um, and he kind of did the roller coaster, you know, a few steps forward, a few steps back kind of thing for a long time. And then he had this stretch where he was doing okay. Um, and, you know, they put him on a less invasive ventilator. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we were able to hold him a little bit more, uh, actually see his face um, and hear him cry, which, you know, I know it's kind of one of those things that a lot of non-NICU parents probably take for granted. But because, you know, when babies cry all the time, you just want to pray that they stop crying, right? Well, NICU parents, we don't really have the luxury of hearing our, our kids cry. And so we pray for the yeah. moment that we actually get to hear it. And my wife and I were we kind of cheered up the first time we heard our son cry. Um, it, it was so sweet sounding. Um, but, uh, you know, like I said, ups and downs. So shortly thereafter he got sick, had to be put back on high frequency, uh, was there for a few months. And then the docs, uh, came in, they started talking to us about him possibly going to need a take home vent. Um, he wasn't deathly ill at that point. Uh, we, personally had gotten so used to the day-to-day just being in the NICU at that point that we really weren't even looking for a finish line. But somebody came in and basically had to remind us, like, you know, the goal is to not have him be here forever. And so have you guys thought about putting him on a take-home vent? Because he will probably need one, and it's not permanent. He'd only have it for a couple years, that whole thing. And so my wife and I were like, again, we weren't even – being a finish line so to be able to somewhat visualize one in our head for the first time it was we were like yeah can we do it today and of course they were like no you cannot do it today yeah, um, yeah. but we were just looking for some kind of closure to the situation we, we just wanted to bring our son home 
Um, now, so, in, so in, in that in that seven months, was he hitting the milestones and everything? Um, you know. Yeah, he. So it's actually kind of cool. The hospital where we stayed at, they had like a, a school bus, a little graphic that had different like lights on it. And Mm -hmm. red represented that he was far away from that goal and green represented that he had reached the goal. And I think yellow was that he was somewhere in between. And so obviously for breathing, he stayed at red most of the time that we were there. Um, Growth, he got to the point uh, that he was doing really well, which I didn't touch on before, but due to uh, high blood pressure, he had intrauterine growth restriction or IUGR. Um, So not only... Uh, did we have the reverse end diastolic flow issue, but also IUGR. He was under the first percentile um, in terms of growth. So he was very, very small. Um, so mm-hmm. he kind of came came into this world with a huge disadvantage right off the bat. Um, right. And actually, the I wasn't in there for that part because I was down with my son, but I guess after my son was born, the docs brought up the placenta, and my wife said it was like the smallest thing she'd ever seen. It just it, wow. it was not anywhere near where it was supposed to be. And they said that they were going to send it off and get it like biopsied and check on it and everything. But And we never heard, I don't think, anything from that, but it was very small compared to what a normal wow. uh, size is. But, yeah, um, did you have any more questions for me? Well, on on going back in, so I want to go back to kind of the beginning and, and especially those first few weeks in the NICU um, and what that was like um, with him being so fragile in the beginning and, you know, mom obviously recovering. Uh, what was that like once – how long did it take mom to get in and start getting in and, and seeing – you know, your son and, and you guys getting through that first week, that, that initial, I mean, sometimes people call it hell week uh, just because, you know, that first week of the NICU is probably the hardest week. Yeah. Um, well, once again, the hospital staff were fantastic. I know the hospital that we stayed at, they, they really were looking at ways to utilize technology to get the parents closer to the, the babies. And so they used iPads um, knowing that, you know, obviously the moms were going to be up recovering from surgery and the babies were going to be down uh, in the NICU. They knew that there needed to be some sort of way that they could communicate and see see one another. Um, so we, we were able to utilize the tablets um, and Skype and, or Zoom rather and, and be able to like call them um, and, and be able to look at our son. But I, I was kind of, the first couple of days um, were kind of that, that grace period. Um, you know, he kind of was just there. Um, there wasn't really anything wrong. You know, they call it the honeymoon period, I think, in the NICU mm-hmm. where, you know, when they come out and they're put on the ventilator at first, you don't really see the sh- the, the shock of being out of the mother's womb yet. It takes 24 to 48 hours for them to get to that point. Um, so I think at that point, my wife and I, we just looked at each other and we're like, have you slept? No. Have you slept? No. Have you eaten? No. Have you eaten? No. And it was just kind of like, well, maybe we should do that now that we kind of have a second to breathe, even though we still probably felt like there was a huge boulder on our chest. Um, at that point, right. we, we finally were just like, maybe we should try to do that. Um, but I just was so, I know me personally, and I can't speak for my wife or any other NICU parent just other than what she's told me. But I was so, I had so many questions and so many people standing around me that I just was like, I was so overwhelmed that I didn't know what to say. Like I knew the questions in my head, but I didn't want to sound like, and this is that I think male bravado that a lot of of men feel that they have to (laughs) kind of project, but I didn't want, like my son was just born in the worst of circumstances. I didn't want to be a bad dad already by asking a stupid question that a dad was supposed to know. And so I, for whatever reason, just, again, due to being overwhelmed, kind of kept all that to myself and uh, just kind of was really silent for a couple of days, just kind of, I guess, letting it soak all in, the the realism of all of it. Um, And, you know, obviously super scared at the same time. Uh, I said, I can't speak for my wife. I know she was worried and scared uh, to death. 
I know for me personally, as, you know, a husband and a father, I was scared to death for my kid, but also scared for my wife who just went through this surgery. I was worried. I, I hoped she would be okay. I knew she was feeling ill from the anesthesia. I knew that this new added stress couldn't be helping that situation. So I think just trying to, to kind of balance back and forth. Um, and, you know, there's no there's no rule book for how to handle that kind of situation either. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. so, you know, normally there's people you can lean on for advice and say, hey, what should I be doing in this situation? And, and there is, there, that person does not exist in the NICU. Um, <laughs> so I think, honestly, just trying to, to soak it all in, I, I think at that point, while being scared to death, I guess is the best way I can put it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, you know, with the time going in, you know, after a month or so, I don't want to say you catch your groove, but you almost do, you know, you start getting in that day to day and, you know, it seems so far away on when you are going to get out of there. But when they start talking to you about that take home, um, did everything change? I mean, for you guys and, and, and your thinking and just everything? Yeah, I you know, I think one thing that we were able to appreciate probably more so later on than at least at first, whenever the, the newness was still there, was, was how real the the nursing and physician staff kept everything with us and respiratory therapists mm-hmm. for that matter. You know, when you first get in the NICU, you're so scared to death of everything that when you start hearing words like, essentially that he could die and you're like what like aren't you you know he's hooked up to all those machines isn't he going to be okay like can't you guarantee me that and of course they can't guarantee that so being in that environment for the first time that's definitely not something you want to hear later on you know when they tell you uh things that they think are going to happen and they keep it real with you i think you appreciate it on a greater level um because it's like you know we've been here for a few months now we're kind of used to the day-to-day um we definitely don't want to be bs at this point right um for us um nobody really talked about an end in sight probably until i want to say like five months in it was quite a ways um because my son he just kept getting hurdle after hurdle that he had to, to jump over um, and he kept getting sick. Um, so does that answer your question? I know there was another question. Yeah. Yeah. That, no, absolutely. And I, so I want to go back to your story and they come with you guys talking about the oxygen and where, what, let's go back to that story there and what, you know, and, and what happens next. Yeah. Uh, okay. You mean after they put him on the oxygen? Right. Well, after they started talking about the take home, um, oh, you know, right. going home. So, yeah, once they basically came in and they're like, you know, we're 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 trying to to remain optimistic here. Uh, we think that Beckett is, is and when that's my son's name, Beckett uh, is going to need a take home vent uh, when he is able to go home. We kind of were like, well, do you guys have an idea of a timeline of when that might be? And at the time, it was halfway through the year, and we were really hoping that we, you know, we'd be able to take our son home for the holidays. Um, and they obviously didn't tell us that. They won't. They won't tell you that because they don't want you to get your hopes up. But they said essentially that, you know, well, if we can get to this point, we think that it would be a really good idea to have the surgery to put a trach in uh, so that he could you know, start going through the motions of getting a take-home event. And I know personally, uh, the town I live in in Missouri, it's uh, pretty oversaturated with people um, and not enough uh, home nursing uh, to accommodate for that amount of people. And so they kind of warned us up front, like, hey, if you if he gets a take-home event, there's a good chance that even if he is ready to go home, he's going to have to sit here in the hospital and wait. And, you know, we were like, man, that, that, that really stinks. Um because if we get to the point where he's he's ready to come home, that's that's going to be obviously what we want to do. We're not going to want to yeah. sit here in the hospital any longer after that. Um, so, but at that point, I think psychologically and emotionally, we were just happy that we were discussing some sort of end. Um, mm-hmm. And I know it wasn't long after that. Like I said, that was probably about six months in. My son started getting sick. Um, and he was sick for, I want to say like a week. Um, and then he got a little bit better 
And then I'll never forget, it was a, a Sunday, I believe, um, August 18th. My wife and I had got up pretty early, um, and we had gotten used to kind of, the nurses were probably sick of us, but we had gotten used to calling every few hours just to check and make mm-hmm. sure our little man was okay because, <laughs> you know, we, we were fortunate enough to not be too far from the NICU, and I know some parents have to be hours away, and I can't imagine what that's like. Um for us, you know, like I said, we, we weren't that far, but we still, even when we weren't there, called and checked in on them constantly. So we called, uh, actually, I think the nurse called us at like 6 a.m. And of course, every time they call, your heart drops because you don't want it to be right. something bad. And she calls and she basically said, like, Beck's doing fine. We think he had a really good night. He, he seems to be taking a you know, turn for the better. And so we were like, who? thank goodness. Like I said, this is like 6 a.m. on a Sunday. So we, we, of course, when we heard the phone ring, we freaked out, but then we were like, okay, well, maybe we can lay back down and, and get some sleep. So that's kind of what we tried to do. Uh, did that for like a couple more hours, and then the phone rang, um, and it was my son's doctor, and doctor called and basically said, hey, you know, we think you guys need to get here. Becca is taking a turn for the worst. We're not sure if he's going to make it. And I know for me, hearing those words for the first time in that context, it made it extremely real. And I think I was a little angry and just wanted to take it out on somebody, frankly. Um, and there wasn't really an outlet for that. I had a lot of questions yeah. like, like how could he have taken a turn for the better and then immediately gotten worse? Like that doesn't just happen. What, what happened? Um, I just had a lot of questions because I hadn't been there. I, I felt resentment for myself for not having been there. I I was scared to death. Um, But more than anything, we knew that we needed to get there. So we threw on our clothes um, and got up to the hospital. And when we got there, he just, he didn't look good. He's white. You could tell that he is having some difficulty breathing. Um, Surrounded by medical staff who were all fantastic and, you know, to this day, I, I am sorry probably for the way that I sounded that day, but I, I was so scared and, again, didn't know how to act. And we basically got there and were there all day with him. Um, he'd have momentary lapses where it seemed like he might possibly get over it and then just revert back. And then I think it was kind of mid-afternoon-ish. Um, they had gotten to the point where they were literally doing everything they could. Um, they had his oxygen turned all the way up to 100%. They had brought out the nitric, um, and they had started giving him uh, breathing tri- They They were doing everything that they could. Um, and it, it's hard for me to talk about, but I think the part that stabs me in the gut the most was the moment that one of the <clears> – <throat> one of the nurses uh, was standing next to his bed and um, basically asked us, you know, it's, it's looking pretty bleak at this point. What do you guys want to do? And we kind of looked at each other and, and we're like, this can't be it. Right. And then we said, well, like, isn't he going to be okay? And she said, well, I don't want to tell you this, but we think he's suffocating. And mm. I just, I know personally, I, crashed to my knees. I cried. I asked God why, why, how could this happen? Like, what did, what did he do to deserve this? Like this, this can't be it. This kid has been through hell. He's conquered hell. He's finally got a possible finish line in sight. Like, how can this happen? Like, this should not happen to babies. They're so innocent, like, and he's so perfect and beautiful. Like, how could this happen? And yeah, I mean, uh, basically, after that, um, they asked us if, if we wanted to turn off the machines, and we didn't really know how to answer, um, so they kind of said that, that they were pretty sure he was going to pass and that we needed to kind of come to terms with that and figure out how we wanted to go about it at that point, and so we decided to shut the machines off, and, and one of the docs uh, asked us if we wanted to hold them with no equipment 
uh, attached. And so we we got to do that for the first time. Um, he was baptized, which was, you know, an amazing moment as a father for me to be able to see. I just wish it, you know, weren't under that circumstance. Um, yeah. But we, at that point, we, we went ahead and, because I know leading up to that point, we were very, it was almost like we tried to protect our family from what they might see if they came into the NICU. So we tried mm. to schedule, we tried to schedule a time that our family could come and see them. Um, and if we knew it was going to be a difficult day, you know, we'd tell them like, Hey, he's having a difficult day. You shouldn't, you shouldn't come today, maybe another day. But then I know at that point we just were kind of like, please just go get our family. Like this, this is probably going to be it. Like, just go get our family. And they, they were already all there and they came back and we kind of just held them at all and, and cried for uh, several hours, I think. And, and he finally passed at that point. Pretty rough. Man. Yeah, tough. And I know there's, I mean, again, no rule book on this kind of thing. Um, but I think one of the harder things for me was, you know, not only did my son pass, but but now I'm sitting here and like I'm seeing his body and obviously no life, like. I, I've been around people who've passed before, but when you're holding them in your arms and it's your own kid, it, it's it's like a part of you is dying. And to look down and see my son turning blue and it just, all that, it just was one of the hardest things, the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life. Yeah. I can't imagine. Can't imagine. <clears throat> so you... Um, you and I had actually been talking before then. Mm-hmm. Um, we had been talking about, I guess, through this time in the NICU, you, you had been kind of vlogging everything, um, or yeah, um, you know, so. So when I found out that I was going to be a dad, like I said, way back whenever my wife surprised me with that, that book and the pregnancy test in the kitchen, um, I, at that point, I've always been a writer. And for me, um, writing is kind of like my therapy. Um, I write because I like it, but sometimes I write to kind of convey a, an emotion that I can't otherwise do through, through talking to people. Because a lot of people who know me know that, like, I kind of keep a lot of stuff to myself, especially the hard things. Um, and then I don't, I, nece- I don't, I know that that's not necessarily probably the best thing to do psychologically, but it's just kind of the way that I operate. But through writing, I thought that sharing the journey to fatherhood would be an opportunity to show everybody the growth that I was going through. So I started writing down everything that I was feeling, everything that I was thinking about, uh, after I found out that I was going to be a dad, well, whenever we found out that we were going to have our son 15 weeks early, I started uh, blogging about that stuff too. Um, So I started my blog whenever I found out I was going to be a dad. Now that I was a NICU dad, you know, I kind of blogged about that whole process. Um, And ultimately I, I just hoped more than anything that, by sharing my experience. Cause like I said, when I got into the NICU, I had so many questions, but I was so overwhelmed. Um, and I just, I just kind of shut down at that point and, and didn't talk to anybody. Um, so I, uh, I started writing and I guess my hope was that perhaps another NICU dad might see something I was writing and just think like, you know, me too, man. Like, yeah, I feel the same way. And, and I guess hope that it resonated with them and that it might help them. Um, I started kind of really promoting it. I I ran a couple of social media ads, again, just trying to get the word out about my blog, honestly. And uh, I had some dads reach out to me uh, through email, through social media, and basically people I'd never met. Because, of course, you know, anytime you start a new project, you have all the people that you know that are like, man, like, you know, you're doing a really good job. Like, I'm loving the stuff that you're turning out. And, you know, that's 
those words mean a million bucks. But when you hear it from somebody that you don't even know and they have no bias towards you whatsoever, to hear I had a NICU dad reach out to me and he basically said that an article that I had written had brought him to tears because he had gone through the exact same thing, but he felt so isolated from his family and his friends because they didn't know how to help him. And, you know, he felt like he had to be this all-American dad who was, you know, essentially the protector of the family. And as any NICU dad knows, that's an impossible burden to carry because you cannot, you can't be the protector in that environment. Um, But he basically was like, you know, when I read that, it was like a a huge thing had been lifted off my shoulders, like, thank you so much. Like, it's so nice to hear that I wasn't the only one feeling those things. And I think for me, because there were several times uh, writing my blog that I had kind of had this thought, like, man, you know, writing this, people aren't going to want to read this. Like, it's too depressing. And I just felt like giving up. You know, I, I had more important things to worry about. But after hearing that guy say that I think is what really kept me going um, writing because I wanted to to help somebody who might be going through what I was going through. Yeah. And actually that's how you and I kind of came across each other. Um, And we actually had talked about doing the blog and I mean about doing the podcast and having you in here. And normally I, uh, on the podcast, I, I mean, I think guys that are in the NICU are already focused on the NICU. And so, but in talking to you, I was just, you know, amazed at how well you were handling that um, and kind of where your, your head was at. But, you know, and I, I think the part that I want to put out there is that we were actually scheduled to do an interview for the podcast um, that day that, that, Beckett passed away and um, it was it hit me like a ton of bricks Um, you know it just um, it was it was just so unexpected Um, and you know I feel like in a way I I was kind of there with you in in the journey Mm -hmm. a little bit you know getting the updates and you know it seemed like there was light at the end of the tunnel and um you know, it just, I know how far away and removed I am from it and for it to have affected me the way that it did. Um, as a parent, I can't imagine how you coped with that and, and what type, you know, how the bereavement was on something like that. I mean, how, how do you, how do you move forward from that? Um, I think, I mean, I, I definitely think it's one of those things that you'll never move past. Um, you, you do obviously put one foot in front of the other and try to continue to move forward day by day, but it's never, I mean, my son is the first person I think about when I get up of the morning and the first thing I think about when I go to bed, I talk, I talk to him multiple times throughout the day. Um, so I think there's a difference between moving forward and letting go. And I think some people have a hard time, especially with dealing with their grief of, of differentiating the two things. I know for me, I felt that by sharing my journey, um, I was doing something that would make my son proud. Um, and, you know, by telling people about who he was, you know, kind of sharing the impact that he had on me that it might help somebody else. Because the thing about my son was that, you know, he was going through a million things on a given day. I mean, it made everything that I was going through just seem trivial. I mean, he would be poked and prodded with so many different things. He was sick all the time, but he never cried. He had a smile on his face the whole time. And I think, you know, as a dad, I'm supposed to be the one teaching my son how to be, you know, a boy and then become a man. But he really taught me how to become a man Um, because I used to complain at the, the most trivial things, you know, anything that, could possibly ruin my day I'd complain about and now it just it just doesn't matter on the grand scheme of things um you know I'll still complain about you know my sports team losing here and there but you know <laughs> you know if I'm stuck in traffic or whatever like it just doesn't it doesn't matter to me anymore because yeah you know the one person in this world who had the right to complain never did so I I shouldn't have that right either but I know 
again, for me, the best way that I can move forward is to carry on the things that he taught me and try to help as many people going through the same thing um, that I did. Uh, I think that's, that's probably the best thing that I can do. I'll never get past it. I'll never get over it. I will carry it with me until the day that I die. And I'll say one thing. Throughout this process, um, I've met and talked to a lot of people who have told me, you know, that the courage that I've exhibited has has been great. But it's it's nowhere near the courage um, that those babies that are in the NICUs that fight every single day go through. It's, it's nowhere near the courage that the doctors and nurses who fight for them um, and alongside them have to go through. I am doing it as a way to essentially try to match, I guess, the tenacity and the the fight that my son had on it and the vigor that my son had on any given day. Um, I'll always fall short of it, but it's just something that I, I hope to continue carrying until the day that I die. Um, but, but, yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and one of the things, I guess, that you did as far as coping, and I guess to honor Beckett, is you wrote the book From Love to Loss. And um, I, I want to talk about that. Um, what were what were you hoping with it? And, you know, what do you see as, as coming from that? Yeah, so when I was writing the blog, um, I guess more than anything, you know, when you write online, you have to write in such a way that people are going to engage and read with it. Um, and when you write in kind of a blog format, you know, you can convey a feeling, but it's kind of lost quickly. Um, so I was able to write these posts that were resonating with people, um, but they were short. And so I kind of got the idea about halfway through my NICU journey when my son started getting that point where he was starting to get a little bit better. I was like, you know what, I'd like to write a book on, you know, when parents are in that phase after just getting in the NICU and they're so scared and so overwhelmed that they just – aren't at the point where they want to ask questions yet, but yet they still have a million questions. I want to write a book that could be given to those parents so that even like they're not ready to ask the questions, but they could read this book and then they'd still be educated enough that when they are ready, they can then start asking those questions. So I went online and did a bunch of research. Um, and then obviously based on my own personal experience of questions that parents have uh, when they get into the NICU. Um, from basic to a lot of complex questions. Um, and I wrote them all down. I think I had like 100 questions. Um, <laughs> and I kind of parsed them down uh, based on uh, the experiences that I had that I could actually speak to. And I came up with an outline for a book, and I kind of I started writing at that point. At that point, I started writing less for my blog. I think at one point I was writing like a post a week on my blog, and I kind of cut it back to a post every few, and then it, after that, it was like a post a month, but I started focusing more on the book. Um, but then, so I think I wrote, had written like five chapters uh, that was um, about kind of how to approach the NICU, I guess, like a NICU playbook, if you will, for parents. Um, and then at that point, my son started, you know, getting sicker and sicker and sicker and up until the point that he passed. And I think the book kind of evolved from there for me. I again, I, I write because it's kind of therapeutic for me. Um, so I just ca I continued to write about the things that I was feeling um, while he was sick, you know, up to the point of losing him and then even after losing him and kind of how I was drawn near to my faith and Jesus Christ. You know, I started uh, reading the Bible again. Um, I've always been a Christian ever since, you know, I was a boy and I, I used to go to church every Sunday. But um, and I, I'll always be a Christian, but I had grown apart from uh, the word and and going to church. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that this process showed me was how close to death and life that you could possibly be in that NICU. And and yeah. so I, I was drawn near to to Christ and I started reading the Bible again and, and got really in touch with my faith. And I think the end of the book kind of exemplifies that. Um, and, yeah, I, I wanted that book is, is I guess, what I want my son's legacy to leave for somebody in the hopes that it can help them, um, is everything that I went through. Well, I think you did an amazing job, and I think he would be really proud of you. Um, I love it. Um, well, thank you. 
it's definitely a NICU must read. I mean, it's, there's not a lot of stuff out there, um, you know, and hopefully that'll start changing, but um, I definitely, you know, I think it's something that can help a lot of people. Um, now with, you know, being in the NICU for seven months and, and, you know, everything that you experienced, what is some advice you would offer current NICU dads? Um, let's say guys that are in for the first week or, you know, also guys that are in for, you know, month number four. I think probably the best advice that I can possibly give to parents, but probably dads in particular, is that it's perfectly okay to not be okay. You do not have to shoulder the burden of being the protector all on your own. Um, It's okay to admit to yourself and to your family that you're not mentally in a good place and that you need some help. And I think it's imperative that you do because when you get to the point that you are mentally well, it's the best point that you can be mentally well for your family and for yourself and for your child. Um, And I think when I got to the point in my journey that I came to that realization, it was probably shortly before my son passed. And then obviously I kind of had to reroute my thought patterns at that point. But I was in a pretty solid place whenever we were looking – uh, forward to to possibly bringing him home and getting him on the take home vent, um, I was in a pretty good place. So I would say that it's perfectly okay to not be okay, and and admit it, admitting that to yourself and and to your family. Absolutely, I agree with you 100%. Well, Chris, I want to thank you for being on this episode today and sharing your story and your experience and and just you know talking about Beckett and just. I just appreciate it so much, man. And I want to welcome, you know, thank everybody also for uh, listening to this episode of the Nick, you dad discussions. And we just really appreciate it and want to thank you. And hey, actually uh, want, want you to, you know, do continue the good work that you're doing, man. You're doing some good stuff out there. Absolutely. And Hey man, you too. Um, I, I know maybe a lot of the listeners out there don't know, but this guy does a ton of work uh, out there for Nick, you dads as well. Um, So keep up the good work that you're doing, and we'll definitely stay in touch. Thanks for having me. Uh, No problem, man. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Once again, please take a look at thenickudad.com. We continue to grow the list of resources we are bringing NICU dads. To my fellow NICU dads, good luck, and remember, you are not alone.